Well, it's a pleasure to be here at the conference, and what a great theme, especially during the month of October as we're celebrating 500 years of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther and the courageous stand that he took. Um, That's really significant. It's a great theme for a conference. Um, By the way, I do have a little clipboard here. I'm going to pass it around. If you're at all interested, and we have from grandpas and grandmas down to people straight out of college, um, interested in our graduate program in biblical counseling, we have a resident format where you can actually move near Santa Clarita and take evening classes, or we have a non-resident format where you can just come for a couple of weeks during the year to take classes and still get a fully accredited graduate degree in biblical counseling. Uh, I know that... uh, You have people in your church that have already gone through this particular program, but if you're interested at all, or if maybe you're from another church, we have a little sign-up sheet, um, and it also, hopefully, if you pray with me, a year from now, we'll have a doctoral program in biblical counseling up and running, fully accredited as well. If you're interested in that, you can mark that down on this little sheet too, and we will not send you a lot of nefarious information. We're only going to send you updates on the program. That's all you'll get if you are interested in that at all. And uh, you'll have uh, one of the guys in our missions department for our graduate program, and probably be my son because he works in it, which is James's twin brother, Jay, uh, that would probably get in contact with you. So I'm going to pass this around and uh, while we're talking today and kind of use that as an opportunity for all of you. All right, this morning, or this afternoon, I should say, our focus is upon, really, biblical sufficiency. There's where we want to go. And this is a significant and very important topic for the Church of Jesus Christ today. Going clear back to the time of the Reformation, uh, one of the critical issues that bothered Luther, if you've ever read a biography of Luther, if you've ever heard somebody teach on Luther, was the fact that first the Roman Catholic Church taught a false gospel and it had been mixed with all kinds of human works. But then closely associated with that was the fact that the Roman Catholic Church had also um, was not really practicing what its doctrine taught. In other words, its orthodoxy was different than its orthopraxy. Its orthodoxy was different than its orthopraxy. And it's really interesting today. We could say the same thing about many evangelical churches today, where what they say on paper in relationship to the Word of God and the authority of the Word of God is one thing, that's its orthodoxy, but the orthopraxy of the church, that is, how they practice what they say that they believe or how they fail to practice what that they say that they believe now becomes a big issue. And there is a sense in which there needs to be a second reformation on this area alone, the area of biblical sufficiency. How sufficient is your scripture? When you talk to a lot of evangelical Christians, they'll think, well, it's sufficient to show me how I can be a Christian, how I can go to heaven. It's sufficient on that level. And we don't deny that. That's certainly true. But is there anything else to its sufficiency? We would expect it to be more sufficient than that, especially when Jesus says, 
I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. In other words, does it speak, does your Bible speak to the common soul welfare problems of our day? When a person struggles with severe depression, does the Bible deal with that issue? When a person deals with anxiety, with fear issues or panic attacks, when there are major problems in marriages, when people are suicidal. Does the Bible deal with those kind of issues? When Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly, we would expect the Bible then to follow what its author has said. We would expect that. We expect the Bible to speak to real soul issues. That's really critical. So I hope you brought your Bible with you. We're going to get into the Word of God right now. And in order to begin with, let's go over to Psalm 19. We'll begin with Psalm 19. I left my little clicker. We want to take a look at this. There are some Hebrew commentators that have called this the Psalm of two books because they realize that Psalm 19 can be easily divided into two categories. One has to do with general revelation, and the other category has to do with special revelation. General revelation would be verses 1 through 6. Special revelation would be verses 7 through 14. But in reality, this is not a psalm of two books as much as it is a psalm of one theme. In fact, We're going to take a look at this psalm in a little bit of detail, and then we have some other passages we want to go to in order to help you to understand and appreciate how great the Word of God is. But if we were to sum up the theme of Psalm 19, it would be something like this, that greater than all of creation is the glory of God in His Word. Did you hear me? Greater than all of creation is the glory of God in his word. That is the theme of Psalm 19. Now you say, why do you say that? Well, take a look at verse 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. In other words, everything in all of creation throughout the universe, and the Hebrew here... The verbiage in the Hebrew is very specific because it's talking about this is a continual thing. This is where the heavens are constantly bombarding man with the fact that God is there in all of his glory. And the Hebrew term for glory is the word kavod, which means um, literally means heaviness or the heaviness or significance or in the importance of God. All of creation is bombarding mankind with the fact that God is glorious. We, we serve a glorious God. And here's the continual sense again in the Hebrew, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. This is something that's ongoing. It doesn't stop. In other words, the atheist lives in a hostile environment. The atheist lives in a hostile environment where everything and all of creation is constantly bombarding them with the idea that God is there in all of his glory. That's there. And then it goes on and says, day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, it doesn't stop. 
It goes on day and night, and yet not a word is being spoken, and yet it's referred to as speech. It's referred to as knowledge. In other words, non-verbally, all of creation is constantly bombarding man with the fact that God is there in all of his glory. In fact, he says in verse 3, David goes on and says, There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Even in secular communication theory, they tell you that 93% of all meaningful communication comes from nonverbals, not from the actual words that are used. So nonverbals like uh, facial expressions, gestures, Tone of voice are all nonverbals express to you the majority of meaning of what somebody is saying. So God takes all the nonverbals of all of creation and bombards man with the fact that he is there in all of his glory. And then it says in verse 4, their line has gone out throughout all the earth and their audience utterances to the end of the world. There's nobody on the planet that's not impacted by it. In them, he has placed a tent for the sun. Um, Even a deaf, blind, mute can feel the warmth of the sun as it rises in the morning and the coolness as the evening as it goes down can picks up the fact that there is rhythm and order within the universe. Even that, you don't even have to be able to see the universe to be able to do that. The sun rises, the sun sets, verse 5, which is as a bridegroom coming out of its chamber, it rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit is to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. No one is not exposed for that. So we can say this, when it comes to what we call in theology general revelation... General revelation is there and is revealing the fact that God is there in all of his glory. That's very clear. That's very key. Now, notice one thing about this, though. General revelation is not saying that if we study the created universe around us, that we can come, listen to this, to normative truths about how to handle problems that man faces. It's not saying that's not general revelation. That that would be general revelation about man. General revelation is not about man and it's not about his problems. General revelation is about God and revealing God's glory. There's a difference. It's critical. And it's important that you see that. You don't find normative truth for living in general revelation. You don't find that. Where do you get that? Well, you get that from the word of God. Look at verse 7. Now we have the transition. Then he says, The law, the Torah of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise is simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. So when it talks about the fact that it's perfect, That means that it is uh, flawless and it's based upon the very character of God. Remember that because we're going to make a point of that in just a little bit. All right. Remember that the word of God is flawless because its author is flawless. The word of God is absolutely comprehensive because its author is comprehensive. 
In other words, God never leaves out anything that we need. He never leaves out anything when we need that we need. For example, if you think that somehow psychology, contemporary psychology is the answer to the problems today, let me ask you a question. What did the Church of Jesus Christ do for 1,850 years until a God-hating Jew by the name of Sigmund Freud was born and finally gave us the key to our souls? Well, the church was without answers. They just stumbled along until psychology was invented. Now we've got key answers to real issues of our soul. Do you think that that is God's nature. That belief alone robs God of his glory. It robs God of his glory. That kind of view says God has revealed information in his word that's good for my life, but it's not really sufficient to deal with the serious problems of my life. Really? Is that the God you serve? Is that the God that you really are worshiping? He's an insufficient God. His character is incomplete. This strikes at the very heart of what we believe. The word of God is perfect. That means it's flawless. Restoring, and really the word restoring in the Hebrew is really inverting the soul. The word of God is flawless. It inverts the soul. Now think about that for a moment. Put a little marker here. Let's go back to Romans chapter 1. Because there's a unique thing that Paul says here in Romans. Pick up in verse 18. Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, look at this, suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. God has placed it within them for God made it evident to them. Verse 24, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Now, let me ask you a question about this. We're beginning to see that even though all of creation is bombarding mankind with the fact that God is there in all of his glory, even though all of that is the case and that atheistic men live in a hostile environment, they live in God's environment, even though that's true, man, Romans 1 says, can take that in verse 18 and suppress that knowledge, all right? Man can take that knowledge and literally suppress it. It's like a spring that is pressed down. It's like a spring. That's, the knowledge of God is within them, is rising up. They, they know that there's a God there, but they refuse to acknowledge him as God. They refuse. In fact, they'll openly say there is no God, but yet within them they know they're, they're pushing, suppressing the truth. That's what happens with general revelation. So even if you could find truth that is normative for living within general revelation, man would take it and do what with it? Suppress it in unrighteousness. Even if you could, you can't. You know, the most honest scientist in the world has got to agree with you 
that science can only bring about probability. It can never bring about certainty. Why? Because in order to be certain, a scientist would have to examine every instance of a particular event in the entire universe. And you know what? That is impossible. They can only sample certain things. So they can only say with all probability, I mean, some of you have lived long enough, you know, back in the 1980s, they told us that eating eggs were horrible for you. Science proves eggs are terrible. You don't want to eat eggs. You'll die young if you eat eggs. 1990s, guess what? Science has demonstrated eggs has elements in it that everybody needs. It is a natural food. You need to eat more eggs. Science is constantly doing that to us. One generation knows this. Next generation, they say something different. It's constantly changing with different things that we know. The best that science can do. I'm not against science. I'm, I want good, hard science. If you're in biblical counseling you're, and you're, you're committed to the word of God, you want good, hard science. But we realize science has its severe limitations. Science can only produce probability. And even with that, the conclusions they come to can be suppressed. Because that's what happens in general revelation. Imagine suppressing all the evidence that God is there and all of his glory out there in the universe as well as within man. Man suppresses that and unrighteousness refuses to think about that. Imagine that. Well, verse 20 of Romans 1 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. They are without excuse. You don't even have to go and preach the gospel to someone without them being condemned because they already know. They already know that God's there in all of his glory. They just choose to suppress it in a righteousness. So go back to Psalm 19. So... The law of the Lord is perfect, it's flawless. The testimony of the Lord, verse 7, is sure. That means it's trustworthy. You can trust the word of God, the law of God. You can trust it, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. That means they're absolutely straight. God calls things straight. Rejoicing in the heart. The commandments of the Lord are is pure. That means it's it's crystal clear. It's pure. You know, that's pure, pure gold is crystal clear. All right. That's the word of God. The word of God is pure. It's crystal clear. Enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean that without imperfection, enduring forever. The judgments or the rules of the Lord are true. As in not false, they are righteous altogether. So what are we saying? Well, in verse 7, it's the law of the Lord that is flawless, that takes man when he suppresses the truth and inverts the soul. So now instead of resisting God, man now longs for God. It is the word of God that transforms the soul of man. Unlike any other book on the planet, there's no other book on the planet that does that kind of thing. This book does. It is the holy word of God that transforms the heart of man, changes man, causes him to long after righteousness, to long after God, where before he resisted him. 
General revelation cannot change man. Only the word of God can change man. The word of God in work with the Holy Spirit in connection with the Holy Spirit transforms the heart of man. That's something that you and I cannot do. Only God's word can do. That's the reason why verse 10 says they are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honey's comb. Gold was the most valuable thing in David's day. Honey was the sweetest thing in David's day. Moreover, verse 11 says, By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me from hidden faults. That, that is, with the word of God, the context here is with the word of God. It, the word of God shows us the things that are wrong in our life that we don't even realize were, are wrong. That's the hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Those are sins that we willfully do. We know they're wrong, but we do them anyhow. Why? Because those are the kind of sins, presumptuous sins, that have an enslaving quality to them. And then he says, let them not rule over me. Man cannot change his own heart. Only God can. That's pretty obvious. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Then I will be blameless and shall be acquitted of the great transgression. And let the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, I want you to understand this. Let me go back to what I said earlier. Greater than all of creation is the glory of God where? In his word, right? Greater than all of creation is the glory of God in his word. Now, in order to help you see this a little bit more in depth, let's go over to 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter. I'm still in my introduction, by the way. Second Peter chapter 1. And I want you to look at this carefully because the Apostle Peter gives us insight into the Word of God. All of chapter 1 of Second Peter is about God's Word. And what, the reason why that's so important is because Second Peter was written to warn about the coming of false teachers, and it was the word of God that was going to save the Christians from those false teachers. We have lots of false teachers in our world today. Um, and let's pick up in verse 3. And notice how what Peter says... 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, what Peter says about God's word. He says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Now, you'll notice here, this is a statement as to biblical sufficiency. In other words, he doesn't say his divine power has granted to us many things. He doesn't say his divine power has granted unto us several things. He doesn't say his divine power has granted unto us a few things. He says his divine power has granted unto us everything 
pertaining to life and godliness. Everything. That is a statement as to biblical sufficiency. Verse 4 says, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. It's the lust that brings the corruption. That's really critical. And this is really important for us because as Peter develops this, if we had more time, we'd spend a little bit more time in this chapter. We don't. But as Peter develops this, he's acutely aware of the fact that a lot of Christians live on the basis of their feelings and their experiences. You'll hear people say, uh, well, you know, I, I believe the Lord's telling me to, or I feel that the Lord wants me to, you fill in the blank, or I think the Lord, when, lots of people dwell upon their religious experiences instead of being true to the word. Let me show you how Peter develops this. Let's pick up in verse 16. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, what he's dealing with here is the fact that you want to talk about religious experiences? Top this one. <laughs> Top this one. Verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him on the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, and we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Stop there. What's, uh, what's Peter referring to? Mount of Transfiguration, right? Absolutely. Matthew chapter 17, verse 5. Peter's talking about the fact that I was there present when Jesus was transfigured right in front of my eyes. Who else was there? Peter, James, and John, and Jesus himself. So there were four people standing on that mountain. And Peter, James, and John were eyewitnesses of the transformation of Jesus Christ when they, he was transfigured right in front of him. And the voice spoke from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He said, we all heard this voice from heaven. And that's where the dove came down from heaven. It was as like a dove, but the spirit of God came down like a dove from heaven and came upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says, and we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. You know what Peter's saying? You want to talk about the reliability of religious experiences? Top that one. How many of you were there on the Mount of Transfiguration watching Jesus Christ transfigured right in front of your eyes? Well, it's only three guys that could say that. But look what he says in the very next verse. He says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. In fact, the word made is not even in the Greek. You could say it like this. We have the prophetic word more sure. We have a more sure prophetic word. You want to talk about religious experiences? Peter says, I don't even trust the religious experience I had on the Mount of Transfiguration. You know what is even more sure than that? It's the revealed flawless word of God that is more sure than any religious experience I could ever have here on this earth. 
This trumps everything. This is where I get my truth from. This is what defines my reality. To which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in the dark place till the day dawns and the morning star arises in our hearts. So when God does his perfect work to change us inside through the word of God, which is exactly what Psalm 19 talked about in verse 7, it's the word of God that restores the soul or actually inverts the soul, turns it upside down. But look at verse 20. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. This is not a result of what man thinks about God. It's not a result of that. No prophecy of Scripture was ever given for that reason. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. This is not something that man conjured up in his own wild imaginations. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So if you want to talk about religious experiences, Paul says, top this one. Well, you can't. (coughs) And that's the reason why he says that it is the word of God that is far more sure. It's the word of God that is far more sure. Now take your Bible. Let's go over to Paul. 2 Timothy chapter Three, and we're interested, and we'll pick up in verse 14. 2 Timothy 3, verse 14, it says, Paul says, speaking to Timothy, as a young pastor, you, however, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. In other words, look at this. He doesn't say so that the man of God can get to heaven. Doesn't say that. He doesn't say so that the man of God will understand the gospel, even though the gospel is a critical part of it. He says the word of God is there to equip you for this life now in what you're doing now, not only to get you to heaven, it does point you to heaven, but it is there to equip you for not some good works, Not a few good works, but for every good work. That is the comprehensive sufficiency of the word of God as it works in our lives. Let me ask you a question. How much do you really trust the word of God? I know verbally your orthodoxy says that the word of God is the inspired, inerrant word of God. I understand your orthodoxy says that, but what about your orthopraxy? Do you really in your life practice your reliance upon the truth of the word of God when you face serious difficulties of the soul? When you're severely depressed, when you're anxious, when you're overcome with fear, when you're having interpersonal difficulties with other people or your spouse? What role does the Word of God play in those things? Because the Word of God, we should expect it to do what it says it would do, right? We expect it to do. 
It's there to equip us for every good work. Oh, that's critical. How sufficient is the Word of God in your life? How sufficient is the Word of God in your life? That's really critical. Now, in order to help you to understand this, I have to give you a little bit of church history. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, a movement occurred in broader Christianity called, it was called back then, modernism. Modernism, through pri- primarily through uh, German academia, began to question the reliability of the Bible. This swept through schools all over the world, primarily in Germany, then later England, then later on in the United States. The Bible's not reliable. The Bible is a book full of errors, and conservative, Bible-believing Christians gathered together got their best minds together in order to refute that attack on the inerrancy of the Word of God. And you know what? Make a long story short, they won. (laughs) They won. They were able to refute it. They defeated modernism. Even to this day, if you go to a church, a liberal, modernistic church, it's dying. The only thing that they can teach from the pulpit that is meaningful to people is contemporary psychological ideas. But the modern liberal church is a dying church. You can go anywhere and just go into the service. And it's just a bunch of formality. Many of them don't even believe that there hardly is a God. And if it's a God, they can't decide whether it's a he or she or all of these confused things that are going on, all of that is the natural birth child of what happened in the early 1900s in churches all over the world. And so conservative Bible-believing scholars went on the attack and went after that. But what happened a little bit later on was while we had this frontal attack of liberalism and modernism on the inerrancy of the Word of God, what crept in the back door of the church during that particular time while we were defending the authority and the truth of the Word of God was an even more pernicious error. And Christians began to believe it. It came in the form of modern psychology, which now undermined Christians and their faith in the Word of God to deal with serious problems while scholars turned all their attention on winning the war of inerrancy, psychology basically came in the back door addressing problems where people lived. You can see this, the advent of Christian radio in the early 1950s. There are several brand new radio programs on Christian radio that had to do with psychology and living the life. And in essence, what psychology was doing or what later on became known as Christian psychology was doing, they were scratching where people were itching because people struggle with depression. And so they would address the issue of depression. People struggled with fear issues and phobias, and they were scratching there. And they struggled with marital issues, and they were scratching at that. And people were saying, oh, yeah, 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 this is what we need. But subtly what happened was, even though in our 
doctrinal statements of our churches, a very strong statement on biblical inerrancy was produced. What really happened in the lives of Christians was it undermined their faith in the word of God. And they thought that the real answers to the problems of their soul were somewhere out here in secular psychology. So I'm going to find the answers to my soul out here. And they eventually discovered through that particular process that it became self-destructive. I mean, all of us are familiar with the horrible carnage and shooting that happened in Las Vegas, right? Now, let me tell you something. You're not going to hear this in the public, but a lot. There are a few articles hidden here and there. But you read the background of the shooter. In fact, every single mass shooting here in the United States came from a shooter's gun who was on psychotropic drugs. Every single one of them. Even the school shootings. There's not been a one that were not on psychotropic drugs. We don't know long-term what drugs are doing to the mental stability of people in terms of rearranging the chemical balances in the brain. We don't know that. It used to be uh, way back in the 1980s, if you had been on Ritalin, which is a very common drug used for ADHD, in the United States, you were not allowed to go into the military and, and hold a weapon because they were scared about what you could do if you had been on Ritalin. But so many people, men and women, in the United States were on Ritalin that the numbers in the U.S. military were dropping severely. They they didn't change this as a result of the change in new discoveries of science. They did it because they had a much smaller pool of people that they could bring into the military So they dropped that requirement and allowed people who had been on Ritalin for many, many years in their life, go ahead and come into the military. So that ought to help you a lot. You've got airplanes flying over your heads with nuclear weapons on people who have been on Ritalin for two or three decades. That's scary. It's really scary. The reason why this is such a thing is because drug companies here in the United States have a stranglehold on this area. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. It really is. So what what are we talking about here? Does the Bible have answers for the serious problems of the soul? That is the critical question here. Is the Bible sufficient to address those particular issues? The answer is yes. I've built, built my entire ministry, my entire life on this issue. There are thousands upon thousands of people that are committed to the same thing. I just came from a conference in Jacksonville, Florida, the conference of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. And it is something that is exploding around the world. People who are committed to the absolute sufficiency of the word of God, they're catching it. They're beginning to catch it. And they're beginning to call into question what is going on today. And the horrible legacy that contemporary psychology has left behind in the lives of people. Just to give you an example of this, there's a theory going around. It's a secular theory. It's not a Christian one. It's a secular theory that says something. Why is it that more people commit suicide on psychotropic medications than off of psychotropic medication? Well, the theory says something like this. When you read it, 
It says basically this is where a normal person is in terms of their emotional state. It's where a normal person is. When you're severely depressed and you're thinking suicide, you're so unmotivated, you don't even have the motivation to try suicide. But then when you take psychotropic drugs, that elevates you, not the normality, but it elevates you, sort of washes out your emotions, brings back a little bit of motivation. Now you're more motivated to guess what? Commit suicide. When you're severely depressed, you're not as motivated. On psychotropic medications, you are. More people in the U.S. commit suicide on psychotropic medications than off of psychotropic medications. That's a sad legacy. This is what we're talking about. All right, so that's my introduction. Let's get into what we want to talk about. All right? So we're talking about inerrancy, okay? We're talking about inerrancy. This is such a critical thing. I want you to think about this carefully. Back around 19... Uh, 1980, there was a, a, a document of 19 substantial principles signed by several scholars all over the U.S. In fact, John MacArthur was one of them at that particular time, a statement on biblical inerrancy, on biblical inerrancy. And I want to remind you of what that statement says and then make some observations on it. All right. Article number one, it says, we affirm that the Holy Scriptures are to be received as the authoritative word of God. We deny that the Scriptures receive their authority from the church, tradition, or any other human source. What's that saying? Basically is, since the Scripture is from God, we already read that, right? It came to us from God. In fact, we see here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all Scripture is inspired by God. That word inspired is a hapax legomena. We call it in the Greek. In other words, the only time in all the Greek language that that word is used. In other words, Paul had to invent a word to describe what's going on with Scripture because it's unlike any other book in the Bible or any other, not book in the Bible, but book in the world. Um, and he, and it, it's the Greek term, theonoustos, where he says, all scripture is, theos is God, and noustos is breathed. All scripture is God-breathed. In other words, it comes from the inside, deep inside of God. Right? When you read your Bible, do you think about that? All scripture comes from deep inside of God. It's God. It's like your breath, when you breathe, comes from deep inside your lungs. Scripture comes from deep inside. It is theos noustos. It is God-breathed. It is inspired by God. That's the idea. So the statement on inerrancy says that the word of God does not come. It doesn't receive its authority from the church. That's a, that's a problem that Roman Catholicism has. It doesn't receive its authority from tradition. Sometimes we... we think that tradition makes it authoritative. That's not true. Um, And it doesn't receive its authority from any other human source. The Bible's not authoritative because science says it's authoritative. It's not authoritative because of that. It's authoritative because it comes from God. All right, number two, look at this. We affirm that the scriptures are the supreme written norm by which God binds the conscience and that the authority of the church is subordinate to that of Scripture. 
We deny that church creeds, councils, or declarations have authority greater or equal to the authority of the Bible. Now, this is not saying that church creeds or doctrinal statements are meaningless. Not saying that. It's just that they're only as authoritative as they represent the supreme authority of the Word of God. Follow that? They're only as authoritative as they represent. Because the Bible is the final authority. It's the final authority for all of our faith and all of our practice. We deny that any church creed or any church tradition or any church statement has that authority by itself. It doesn't. Only as it accurately represents what the Word of God says does it have any authority. Look at number three. Number three, we affirm that the written Word is in its entirety is revelation given by God. We deny that the Bible is merely a witness to revelation or only becomes revelation in encounter or depends on the responses of men for its validity. And this really comes out of a tradition early in the 1900s where people were saying, well, the Bible is really not the word of God until it encounters the life of man. And as it becomes meaningful to you, then it becomes the word of God to you. But it's not necessarily the word of God. No, that's absolutely wrong, too. External to us, the Bible is authoritative. That's really critical. And by the way, that's critical in the culture in which we live, the self-defining self-culture of the transgender. All right? Solipsism says, I define my own reality inside of myself. It's my feelings that define reality. That's why I can call myself anything I want. I can self-identify as anything I want. I can self-identify as a gerbil if I want to. And you can't tell me anything because I define my own reality. That is solipsism. That is not the Bible. The Bible says, no, no, no. There is something external to man that defines our reality. This is what God has written that you can base your life on. What God has written. So the Bible, we deny that the Bible is merely a witness to revelation. It's not a witness. It is revelation. It's not a witness to it. And it only becomes revelation in an encounter or depends upon the responses of men for its validity. Our response to it, whether we believe it or not, is irrelevant in terms of its authority. It is authoritative whether we respond to it positively or not. It is God's word whether we respond to it authoritatively or not. Or in a correct way or not. It still remains authoritative. All right. Number four. We affirm that God who made mankind in his image has used language as a means of revelation. We deny that human language is so limited by our creatureliness that it is rendered inadequate as a vehicle for divine revelation. We further deny that the corruption of human culture and language through sin has thwarted God's work of inspiration. So there were some who basically say that human language is inadequate of really communicating what God in his infiniteness could really mean. So the Bible is just a collection of ideas, maybe somewhat representative of what God thinks, but not really authoritative or representative of what God thinks. As Christians, we deny that, that human language by God's design has the capacity to be able to communicate what God wants. And by the way, since God was the one who invented language, he spoke to Adam and Eve, he invented language, then he's capable of using it in an authoritative and meaningful way to communicate what he wants to each of us. That's really critical. That's really important for us to understand. In our postmodern culture, they love that. 
in postmodern culture, words are just vehicles, like like um, uh, like cars on a train that pull up, and you load your own freight and your own meaning onto those words. All right? No, no, no. God's train pulls up, and it's already full of his meaning. You can't load anything onto it. You've got to understand it, what it means within the culture in which it was communicated. Number five, we affirm that God's revelation in the Holy Scriptures was progressive. We deny that later revelation, which may fulfill earlier revelation, ever corrects or contradicts it. We further deny that any normative revelation has been given since the completion of the New Testament writings. In other words, God chose to progressively reveal to us what he wanted as we were capable of understanding it. And in fact, he talks about that very thing. Grab your Bible just for a moment and go over to Hebrews chapter 1. And then the very first verse of Hebrews 1, notice what the author of Hebrews says here. He says, for God spoke here. The Greek term there is lalao. Uh, um, that means spoke out. Uh, long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions. Um, that means parts or books or times, uh, different segments. And in many ways, that means in various manners, sometimes directly, sometimes through dreams, sometimes through visions. God chose to do that. <coughs> so there was a progressive revelation of Scripture down through history, God giving us greater and greater understanding of his will and himself as time goes on. It wasn't just a communication of everything that we would need. It took time to reveal all of this over the ages so that man could handle it and understand it and know more about God. Number six, we affirm that the whole of Scripture and all of its parts down to the very words of the original were given by divine inspiration. We deny that the inspiration of Scripture can rightly be affirmed of the whole without the parts or some of the parts but not the whole. And there are some say, well, you know, the whole Bible is inspired by God, but that doesn't mean every part of it is really accurate. And there are other part people who say, oh, well, you know, there are some parts of the Bible that are better than other parts of the Bible. For... and especially in our contemporary egalitarian culture today, Paul was a male chauvinist pig, and so all of his writings can't be inspired because of that. So that one determinative thing writes off everything that the Apostle Paul ever wrote because he was just a male chauvinist. All right? No, we deny that. You, you can't... The Bible's not like a candy store where you go in there and just pick a few things that you like. It's not like that. It doesn't work that way. All right? The whole of the Bible, is what it is. Number seven, we affirm that the inspiration was the work in which God, by his spirit, through human writers, gave his word. The origin of scripture is divine. The mode of divine inspiration remains largely a mystery to us. We deny that inspiration can be reduced to human insight or to heightened states of consciousness of any kind. So a lot of liberals will say this. You'll hear even people say this today. Well, men were inspired by God, almost the same way like people was inspired to write a novel. Or a person was inspired to paint a mural or a painting. So, oh, what, look at the wonderful inspiration that they had in order to do it. No, 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 no. No, we're not saying, the Bible doesn't say that men were inspired. 
They were moved by the Holy Spirit, but they weren't inspired. It's the words that were inspired. There's a difference. The words that God spoke came from the innermost parts of God and was revealed to us. That has authority written all over it. It's not that men were inspired to write the Bible. It's that the Bible was inspired and men were moved to write it with the superintendents of the Holy Spirit. There's a significant difference between the two. Number eight, we affirm that God in his work of inspiration utilized the distinctive personalities, literary styles of the writers whom he had chosen and prepared. We deny, deny that God in causing these writers to use the very words that he chose overrode their personalities. And this just shows you the absolute power of God in this. In other words, when you study the Bible at any depth, you begin to realize that Paul had a distinctive way of writing. John had a distinctive way of writing. Peter has a distinctive way of writing. Um, that's different. Uh, for example, in the Greek word sarx, which means flesh, John almost always uses the term sarx literally. The flesh, meaning the flesh of the body. He never uses it metaphorically. But Paul, on the other hand, takes that word and he uses it literally, but he also uses it metaphorically. The flesh can speak of the sinful nature of man. You're living according to the flesh, Paul will say. What does that mean? That's the sinful propensities of man. That is distinctiveness in writing styles. It's distinctiveness in terms of personality of the individual authors. God didn't override those personalities, but he used the distinctive personalities in order to reveal his accurate, authoritative, inerrant, and sufficient word. You see? That's really critical. He didn't override their personalities. He used their individual personalities in order to reveal the word. All right, number nine. We affirm that the inspiration, though not conferring omniscience, guaranteed true and trustworthy utterance on all matters of which the biblical authors were moved to speak and write. We deny that the finitude or fallenness of these writers by necessity or otherwise introduced distortion or falsehood into God's word. Yes, every single one of the human authors that wrote scripture were totally depraved. Yes, they struggled with their own sin nature. But again, we deny that that sin nature was actively involved in the communicating of the word. The Holy Spirit again overrode those sinful propensities in order to give us an authoritative word of God. All of that is critical in defining this out. Number 10, we affirm that the inspiration, strictly speaking, applies only to the autographs texts of Scripture, which... Uh, in the providence of God can be ascertained uh, from available manuscripts with great accuracy. We further affirm that copies and translations of the Bible are the word of God to the extent that they faithfully represent the original. We deny that any essential element of the Christian faith is affected by the absence of the autographs. We further deny that this absence renders the assertion of biblical inerrancy invalid or irrelevant. Now, what is that saying? It's basically saying, at this particular point, that um, that the original autographs of Scripture were the ones that were absolutely inerrant. That used to bother me a lot. 
when I was in seminary, I loved Hebrew, and I took all Hebrew classes. I took all the advanced Hebrew classes. For some reason, I just kind of loved Hebrew. I don't know why. And so local synagogue contacted our seminary and said, is there anybody in your seminary can come and teach our, our congregation here, Jewish congregation, Hebrew? So the, one of the Hebrew professors came to me and said, are you willing to go over there to Ahava Synagogue? I said, absolutely. So I went over. I talked with a rabbi. He says, as long as you don't proselytize my, my people, you can teach them Hebrew. I said, I won't, but if they ask me about my faith, I'm going to tell them. All right? So I went over and taught Hebrew. And, you know, here I am, blonde hair, blue eyes. I look like the Gestapo. All right? They didn't trust me at all uh, at first. But I wore my little yarmulke in there and taught them Hebrew. And pretty soon they learned that I wasn't a bad guy after all. And they started sharing. And they invited me to their service. I said, sure, I'll come to your service. So I went in, sat in the back with my little yarmulke on. And at the beginning of the service, some of you have been at Jewish synagogue knows what happens. The rabbi goes up to the front and opens the little case that's usually locked and pulls out the traditional Torah that's there in front. And this Torah at the Ahava synagogue had a really innately uh, ornamented cover on it, dust cover, and there were tassels hanging from the bottom of it. And he held it in his hand and he walked up and down the center aisle and people would come to the center and they would kiss the tassels. All right, they're kissing tassels. And I watched them doing this. I'm going, and all of a sudden it dawned on me at this particular point. Why don't we have the original autographs of scripture? Because that's what you and I would be doing with those. We'd be worshiping those, not worshiping the God of heaven. No, no, no. We're not supposed to worship the Bible. The Bible is God's communication to us. It's accurate, it's authoritative, it's inerrant, and it's sufficient, but we don't worship the Bible. This enables us to worship the God of heaven. There's a difference between the two. So that's the reason why that's so there. Number 11, we affirm that Scripture, having been given by divine inspiration, is infallible, so that far from misleading us, it is true and reliable in all the matters it addresses. We deny that it is possible for the Bible to be at the same time infallible and errant in its assertions, infallibility and inerrancy may be distinguished, but not separated. If we have an infallible Bible, then it by necessity has to be an inerrant Bible. If we have an infallible Bible, you can't divide the two, even though you can distinguish them in terms of speaking, you can't divide those two concepts. That's Again, this goes back to the very nature of who God is. Why? Because God doesn't make mistakes. If God gave us the Bible, then it has to be mistake-free. It has to be inerrant. Number 12, we affirm that Scripture in its entirety is inerrant, being free from all falsehood, fraud, and deceit. We deny that the Bible, biblical infallibility and inerrancy are limited to spiritual, religious, or redemptive themes exclusive of assertions in the fields of history and science, We further deny that scientific hypotheses about earth history may properly be used to overturn the teaching of the Bible on creation and the flood. In other words, what the Bible teaches about this is established. I was just reading this week about a dinosaur that they have found fully intact up in northern Canada. Uh, The epidermis of the dinosaur, the scales are still on it, the protective areas, the, um, 
Mitel Carnal, uh, uh, no, Mitel Chondrail DNA is still intact in the dinosaur. And they're able to establish where they found the dinosaur that it had been, it had, in a sense, fallen into the sea, only they found it in a, in a, um, a mountainous area. <laughs> it had fallen in sea and had been quickly covered over so that other predators in the sea didn't eat it or, or devour it. It was completely intact. And the DNA is still intact. With it, with it, and they're trying to figure out because it destroys everything the evolutionary set, evolutionist says. It almost as if they say in the article that a flood took place. <laughs> you want to say, duh. All right. This is what this is saying. That even though science or whatever may say, the Bible's got a problem here. You just wait long enough. You just wait long enough and science will be proven to be wrong every time. Every time. That's really key. Well, 13. We affirm the propriety of using inerrancy as a theological term, which with reference to the complete truthfulness of Scripture, we deny that it is proper to evaluate Scripture according to standards of truth and error that are alien to its usage or purpose. We further deny that inerrancy is negated by biblical phenomena, such as a lack of modern technical precision, irregularities of grammar or spelling, observational descriptions of nature, the reporting of falsehoods, the use of hyperbole and round numbers, the topical arrangement of material, variant selections of material in parallel accounts, or the use of free citations. In other words, what has happened is they want to take an ancient document and make it conform to contemporary standards of reliability, and you can't do that. It's By its very nature, it is an ancient document. It doesn't conform to those particular standards, and that doesn't take away from its authority at all. It doesn't take away from its inerrancy at all, and it doesn't take away from its sufficiency at all. It doesn't rob it of anything. It just doesn't conform to many of the standards that we would use today on some things in life. 14, we affirm the unity and the eternal consistency of Scripture. We deny that alleged errors and discrepancies that have not yet been resolved uh, vitiate um, the truth claims of the Bible. Um, no, it doesn't negate any of them. And it never will. We, didn't, we would deny all of that. Number 15, we affirm that the doctrine of inerrancy is grounded in the uh, teaching of the Bible about inspiration. We deny that Jesus' teaching about Scripture may be dismissed by appeals to accommodation or to any natural limitation of his humanity. Not at all. In fact, that's what the early Gnostics and Docetists tried to do was, you know, they believed that somehow all material things were evil. And so that means that Jesus could never have come in material form. He only seemed to have come in material form. And if he didn't come in material form, then he didn't live a real life um, where he was hungry and thirsty and he didn't die a real death. If he didn't come in material form and, and he wasn't really resurrected physically. So once you change those basic things about Scripture, then you negate the whole gospel. The whole gospel now is taken away. Modern man nor ancient man can take away from the validity of Scripture. 
because we affirm that the doctrine of inerrancy is grounded in the teaching of the Bible about inspiration. All right, number 16. We affirm that the doctrine of inerrancy has been integral to the church's faith throughout history. We deny that inerrancy is a doctrine invented by scholastic Protestantism or it's a reactionary position postulated in response to negative higher criticism. No. We go, you go back in, in church history, even to the anti-Nacene fathers just after the apostles passed away, and they were committed to the absolute trustworthiness and inerrancy of the word of God. There is no doubt about that. This is a historic document. It's not something that is more recently invented in order to respond to the attack of modernism. 17. We affirm that the Holy Spirit bears witness to the scriptures, assuring believers of the truth, uh, truthfulness of God's written word. We deny that this witness of the Holy Spirit operates in isolation from or against scripture. So, it is the Holy Spirit that works in conjunction with the word of God, never independent of the work of the word of God. And to me, as a pastor, that's reassuring to me. When, when I'm counseling someone, sometimes when I'm done counseling them, I think to myself, wow, John, you did a great job. But there's no change that occurs in their life. There are other times I walk out of there and I say, they have got the worst counselor on the planet. And God radically changes their life. That's not up to me. I can't change anybody. You can't change anybody. It is the Holy Spirit in conjunction with the Word of God at work in their heart that's going to bring about that change. And that's up to his sovereign will. That's always up to his sovereign will. Number 18, we affirm that the text of Scripture is to be interpreted by grammatical historical exegesis, taking account of its literary forms and devices, and that Scripture is to interpret Scripture. We deny the legitimacy of any treatment of the text or quest for sources lying behind it that leads to uh, relativizing or dehistoricizing or discounting its teaching or rejecting its claims to authorship. So, in other words, um, it is the Scripture that must understand the Scripture. If, if you don't understand what's going on in the Bible, then you need to study other texts related to that particular theme, which will build your understanding of what's happened in that particular context and will enable you to understand more fully of what God intends. It's not where we bring external sources to bear upon the Word of God to question it. That's not the idea at all. Um, All right, number 19. We affirm that a confession... Um, of, the, of the full authority, infallibility, and inerrancy of Scripture is vital to a sound understanding of the whole of the Christian faith. We further affirm that such confessions should lead to increasing conformity to the image of Christ. We deny that such confession is necessary for salvation. However, we further deny that inerrancy can be rejected without grave consequences both to the individual and to the church. In other words, can a person be saved if they deny the inerrancy of the Bible? Yes. It's possible, but highly unlikely. (laughs) It's possible. They don't have to endorse the inerrancy of Scripture, but if they are saved, they'll eventually come to that position. They'll eventually 
come to the point where they will not acknowledge that. Now, I have said all of that up to this particular point to conclude with this. Let me highlight four things in conclusion, especially as it relates to the sufficiency of the Word of God for our practical use in the private ministry of the Word, that is, in counseling within the church. How do we do this? Number one is this. I want you to see that both inerrancy and sufficiency of the Word are predicated upon the very nature and character of God. Being absolutely perfect in his divine nature, he reveals himself in absolute perfection, and there is nothing left unrevealed that is important or necessary for the welfare of the souls of his creatures. Nothing. When we're talking about the issue of biblical sufficiency, that is what we're saying. We're saying because it comes from God... It comes from the very nature of who God is. It comes from the very character of God, who himself is all-sufficient, and his son, Jesus Christ, is all-sufficient. Because this is a product of their will, not our will, that by its very nature, it is all-sufficient to deal with the serious problems of life. That is really critical. It's important for us to understand if the Word of God is going to have the proper authority in our life that it should have. It should be all-sufficient because it is the product of an all-sufficient God. He is the author. He is the one who communicated the Word of God. Remember, greater than all of creation is the glory of God where? In his word, right? Greater than all of creation is the glory of God in his word. That's Psalm 19. Remember what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1 when he talked about, if you want to talk about the reliability of spiritual experiences, then top this one. Were you there on the Mount of Transfiguration? No. Even with that, Peter says, we have a more sure prophetic word. You can't depend upon your own feelings, your own inclinations. You can't depend upon your own ideas on how to think about reality. We have to depend upon God's truth that is external to us. We have to study it so that we view all of life through his lenses. We have to view all of life through the word of God. This is really critical. There's a second observation we want to make. Because you have an inerrant word, it is absolutely authoritative, and this authority extends to surpassing and exceeding any theory or counsel that man may construct to deal with the turmoil or difficulties of the soul. In other words, there is nothing in all of contemporary psychology that is more authoritative than the Word of God. There's no secret insights that psychology has that's more authoritative or more helpful than the Word of God. When we're talking about sufficiency, this is what we're talking about. Does that mean that everything that psychology says is useless? No, I'm not saying that. And we're not saying that in regards to the Word of God. Sometimes in terms of perceptual perceptual things, psychology can help us on how we perceive certain things. Sometimes in sleep disorders, psychology can help us when it comes to sleep disorders. But these are areas that are external. These are usually medical-oriented issues. Most of psychology today is not 
grounded in hard science. Most psychology today is grounded on, in soft science. Hard science is based upon direct cause and effect, uh, what we call causation. There has to be a cause, and there's always going to be this effect. When there is this cause, there's always going to be this effect. Psychology is not built upon cause and effect. It's built upon covariation, not causation. That is, causes that seem to be related to effect. That's why psychology is so very much a world-in-life view. Psychology is primarily a theory, not a science. Even in most universities today, it's put under the discipline department of behavioral sciences, which are not direct causation sciences, not like medical science would be a hard science or um, geography would be a hard science or um, mathematics would be a hard science. It, It wouldn't be anything like that at all. It would be things that seem to be related to causes, may or may not, different things can occur. So the reason why we're saying this is we, we never get to that point when it comes to the Word of God. The Word of God is always authoritative. It's always sufficient. And it depends upon us studying it, applying it, and practicing it. That's the critical thing. There's a third thing. Because you have an inerrant word, the Bible's sufficiency means that it possesses both the diagnostic criteria and the critical remedies for the cure of the soul. All right? In other words... Not only does the Bible define what the problem is, not secular literature. That's the reason why we get so confused, because we've bought into the secular language out there in psychology. We label things with secular words. For example, we use the word addiction. Nowhere in the Bible does the word addiction ever occur. Why? Because it comes from the Latin term addictus, which means there is no hope. No, the Bible always uses the term enslavement or bondage. Why? Because a person can be liberated from slavery, liberated from bondage. The world uses terminology like, oh, that person is codependent. The Bible never uses that terminology. The Bible uses terminology that says that person is a man-fearer. That person is a people-pleaser. That's what a codependent is. That's the reason why they are the way they are. They fear man. They please man. Once you define things and label things with biblical terms, then guess what? It's amazing how the Bible opens up in terms of answers for you. All right. Instead of using secular terms, you have to think, how would the Bible define this particular problem? And then the Bible all of a sudden blossoms and opens up to you in terms of answers that you can apply to that problem. So it provides the diagnostic criteria of what's going wrong in a person's life. It also provides the remedy, the direction of what is wrong. When you combine those two together and you're using the word of God well, then the Bible describes you as being full of wisdom. Full of wisdom. Because you're now using truth from the word of God both to diagnose and to help solve the soul problems that people face. So that's the third thing. I need to wrap this up. Number four, it is important that you recognize that the whole of the inner man, soul, spirit, comes under the dominion of the spiritual where the Bible reigns not only as a sufficient source for addressing soul problems, but also as a supreme source. This is why we don't believe in the... uh, trichotomy because 
when the Bible talks about man's spirit and soul, it's talking about the same thing, only in two different areas. The spirit is that intangible part of man out of relationship with the body. The soul is that intangible part of man in relationship to the body. It's the same thing, only described with two different forms. They're not two different things in man. So man possesses a body and a soul. When that body dies, then the soul becomes the spirit. All right? That's the reason why the holy spirit is never referred to as the holy soul because the Holy Spirit has no body. Okay? It's not referred to as the holy soul or he's not referred to as the Holy Soul. He is referred to as the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit has no physical body. In terms, So, the inner part of man is really critical. And the, where the Bible addresses that, it's the only authoritative source that can because it's God who looks on the inside, right? It's man who looks on the outside. So, we have to trust what God is saying that, Whatever it is that's going on in that inner person. I can't see that. So I have to use the body as the fMRI, the Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging Program, in order to see what's going on in the soul. All right? Grab your Bible. Let's go back to Proverbs chapter 20. Proverbs chapter 20. And verse 5 says, a plan in the heart of man is like deep water. By the way, the word plan there in the Hebrew can be the intention of a man, the desire of a man is like deep water. In other words, it's hidden deep inside. But, it says, a man of understanding draws it out. And the implication here is a man of understanding is a person in throughout the book of Proverbs that is wise. They know how to use the word of God in order to bring those things that are hidden on the inside to the outside. So it becomes apparent both to the person who's doing the counseling as well as to the counselee what's really going on in their soul. Why are they having the problems that they're having? So let me sum it up like this. Greater than all of creation is the glory of God in his in his word. Greater in all of creation. Why? Because the word of God is the only thing that can transform the inner man. That's the only thing. In fact, the word that's used there in Psalm 19:7, it inverts the soul. It turns the soul upside down. Man is always going to be able to take everything that occurs out there in general revelation and suppress it in unrighteousness. We saw that in Romans 1:18. And so, even if psychology was able to, dis- to discover certain truths that's supposed to help man, man can just turn around and suppress that in unrighteousness. But that's not real general revelation. General, general revelation doesn't reveal truths that are normative man. General revelation reveals truths about God. Just like special revelation reveals God. It uncovers God. It's not intended to discover certain truths out there in the world in order to show us how we're supposed to live our life. So it's the Word of God that gives gives us that inner perspective on what's going on in the heart and the soul of the man and enables 
the change process to really occur with the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in that person's life. When we're talking about biblical sufficiency, that's what we're talking about. I could probably go on another three hours, but they won't let me. Let's bow for prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We especially are grateful for the power of the word of God, its authority in our life. Not only is it inerrant and authoritative, but it is all-sufficient because it comes from an all-sufficient God. Help us in our orthodoxy to put this into practice in our orthopraxy. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.